We know that God can do anything. The question in all of our minds is, will he? Really, that's it. That is the tip of the spear of faith. We know God can. But will he? Joseph 50, 24 and 25, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. It's always amazed me that it was somewhere between 350 and 400 years later that Israel would actually be visited by the Lord in Egypt and depart. And somebody remembered to go get Joseph's bones. Isn't that amazing? You think God's forgotten about you? think God's forgotten some of the things that you prayed for for years? No. I want to talk to you today about when God comes to church. When God comes to church. God bless you. you may be seated. Joseph, of course, was speaking prophetically when he said these words and he prophesied that God would surely, it's not uh, maybe he will, but without question, Joseph said God will surely visit uh, the children of Israel in Egypt and he will bring them out of that land and he will take them into a land that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Of course, at this particular time, Israel was still in favor with Pharaoh in Egypt, and uh, yet this establishes something that is very unique to every visitation of God throughout the course of time. When God visits his people, it is always for a divine purpose. Every visitation of God from the time that the Lord used to walk with Adam and Eve through the lilies and the roses of the Garden of Eden, every visitation of God is accompanied by divine purpose. I read something not long ago. I made note of it, and it has kind of been on my mind since then. Uh, and it is kind of, uh, not kind of, it has changed my perspective uh, concerning a lot of things. It says we must move from the pursuit of success 
to the pursuit of significance. Whatever your concept of success is, it's not God's concept. Because to succeed is, is not necessarily the most important thing, but to be significant is. I don't know how many people are in this room, but I know that God's desire for every one of you, that your life is more than just made up of weeks, months, and years, experiences along the way, but your life consists of significance, significance. It doesn't take a great deal for us to have good church. It doesn't take a lot of effort, to be honest with you, to have quote-unquote good church. But what we need today is a visitation of God. We need a move of God. We cannot, nor should we, measure our place in this present world by some modern definition of success. See, good church is success. We felt God, we were successful. We spoke in tongues, we were successful. We had an altar call, we were successful. We preached a message, we were successful. But what's God, what God is interested in is how significant is what goes on in the house of God. How significant is this that you have accomplished today? Because success in God's mind is different than what our definition of success is. We live in a world that's destined for judgment. And I hope that it is beginning to become a heavy burden upon you, a dear friend of mine that I have not spoken to for a long time called me the other night. It's a, a name you may re recognize, Brother Lloyd Squires, the King's Clown. Uh, and uh, we talked about that, and he said to me on the phone, he said, well, even so, come Lord Jesus. And I said, I have a problem with that. And it kind of took him back a little bit. And I told him, I said, I understand the idea that we are to uh, desire and welcome the coming of the Lord, but for the Lord to come today, that means my whole family is going to go to hell. For the Lord to come today, everybody I know in my neighborhood is going to go to hell. For the Lord to come today, everybody that I, I know in my wife's family, they're all going to hell. And so even though I really want to go to heaven and I want the Lord to come and I'd rather go by way of the rapture than the way of the grave, it's Hard for me today knowing what that means when the Lord comes. And we bear a heavy, heavy burden. I, I wish I'd never heard of hell. I wish I'd never read about the lake of fire. I wish I didn't know anything about those things and what happens to a soul that dies without God and, and where they will spend eternity. I looked it up the other day. Burning liquid sulfur boils at 832 degrees Fahrenheit. God, I wish I did not know that. Significance. Significance. So I decided to entitle this message, When God Comes to Church, and it may seem like an oxymoron. But as with many other things in 
uh, life and creation, there is a spectrum, a continuum, if you please. I don't think I've ever spoken about this before. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard another preacher preach about it before. But I'm going to introduce you to the reality of a continuum of everything, including that of the visitation and of the move of God's spirit among his people. 12 volts of electricity uh, would not get a rise out of anybody. It perhaps would not even jolt an individual awake, but 120 volts would. 120 volts will not only wake somebody up, it will bring them out of sleep and out of uh, bed very, very quickly. Of course, greater voltages uh, will produce a greater response, and many are even uh, deadly. If we consider the concept of evil, we live in an evil world, and the debate and discussion has went on, at least during my tenure in the kingdom of God, which is for 48 years about the dimensions of sin, that some sin is worse than other sins. And uh, if you take evil, for example, there is a spectrum of evil. And for me to give you an example, the Hebrew word is rea, and it basically uh, uh, is a word that displays 10 or more shades of evil according to the contextual usage of the word. In other words, if I slap you in the face, uh, that may be evil, but that's not as evil as stabbing you in the heart with a stake. There are different degrees and dimensions of evil, and I'm bringing all of this up for a reason to uh, 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 impress something upon you. Uh, according to the Greeks, there are eight different kinds of love. I've made notes uh, listing those eight different kinds of love. Of course, the, uh, the, the highest form of love on the spectrum is unconditional love. Now, I know we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's, that's complete. That's everything. So a visitation of God can be like a gentle breeze, and I think that we were experiencing that to some degree today, but it can also be like a rushing mighty wind. It can be like a gentle wave that uh, just comes gently into shore and then backs off again, or it can be a tidal wave that comes in and destroys virtually everything. Not that we're unfamiliar with that uh, after Ian has torn our... Uh, Fort Myers Beach and Sanibel and other areas to virtually to shreds. Sometimes the Holy Ghost feels like a warm feeling. It's like warm inside. Amen. And at other times, uh, it is an all-consuming fire. At times, God comes to restore, and at other times, he comes to destroy. I'm talking about a visitation of God. I'm talking about when God comes to church and, 
and, and there is a continuum of his presence. There's a spectrum. And what have we come to expect or what have we, what have we come to desire as far as God visiting us on that spectrum? You know, God, I, I want you to move on me, but I don't want you to mess me up too bad. I, I want to feel your presence, but I don't want to lose my dignity among the people of God. I, I want to be blessed, but I don't want you to throw me on the floor and, and make me shake like a leaf. I, I, I want to feel your presence, God, but there's a, there's a degree to which I want to feel that so that I don't lose my control. I, I don't lose my dignity, and, and, and I don't want to embarrass myself among God's people. And I'm going to tell you right now, if we can't yield to the Holy Ghost here, in this room, then where do we do that at? when worship protocols are acceptable here. In Branson, Missouri, there are, I don't even know how many different theaters there are there. You could go to a show probably every night of the week for months, never go to the same theater or show twice, and they have a lot of a lot of theaters where they do magic shows and illusions, you know, all kind of stuff. In fact, we were camped last year, uh, and the, the people lived next door to us. It was camped next to us. He was a magician and performed in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, about 50 miles south of Branson. People would pay, we, we never did, but people pay exorbitant prices to uh, go into these theaters and be mesmerized and amazed at what these magicians and these illusionists could do, amazed by these performers that could seemingly uh, defy the laws of nature and the laws of gravity. But I want to assure you that God never comes to church just to impress us. He never comes here just to say, look what I can do. He never comes here and, and, uh, and tries to amaze us with his, his power and his glory. Now, we might be amazed, but, but that's not the reason he's here. He's here to heal somebody and to take away their pain and to relieve somebody of their addiction. He's here to, to bless somebody and, and strengthen somebody, and that's why he is here. When God visits his people, he's here to challenge us. Don't leave me like I am. Don't leave me in the mess I'm in. Don't leave me the, the poor, pathetic human being formed out of dirt that I am. Challenge me, God, so that I can be a better man, a better person, a better Christian. He's here for a divine purpose to equip us for ministry. It's not just dangle a lost world. Look on the fields. They're all, they're white in the harvest, but people are going to hell. He doesn't just do that so we can sit around and weep about it, but he's here to equip us and prepare us for the harvest. There's a reason why God comes to church. Is it the same reason that we're here? You know, the Bible talks about God's people being in agreement, but what about agreeing with God? What about agreeing with what God is here to do? God, that's not what I had in mind. 
We came here for another reason. You're trying to take us over here, but that's not why we're here. And there's a, there's a word that's been plaguing me in, in day and night for weeks now, and the word is convention. The devil can't stop praise. The devil can't stop worship. The devil can't stop a move of God, but our convention can. Our tradition can stop it. We determine what we expect the service to be. When God comes in and says, I got something else in mind, we go, wait a minute. Hold on now. And we struggle with that. God is here for a reason today. It's not my intent to limit God by any means, but there's at least, there, there are more than this, but there's at least three reasons uh, for a visitation of God. And uh, the first of which is a divine interruption. A divine interruption. Now, uh, I, I know we got to start somewhere with, with singing. Uh, but bless God, we got three songs here now. That, that's what we got here. Come on, music department. You need to be able to flex with the Holy Ghost. You need to be able to throw those songs out if you have to. And let's move with God. Let's, let's flow with the Spirit of God. Whatever direction he goes in. There's some things I want to talk about in a week or so uh, here at a different time, but not today. But we have to move with God's spirit. Some of us struggle in prayer because we have a rut in prayer. And we're going to walk down that rut. And bless God, we're going to pray that every day. And we're going to do this every, for a certain length of time. When sometimes God's saying, hey, I, I want to move on you. I want to bless you. I want to anoint you. I want some intercessory prayer going on here. But God, this is what I do every day. Divine interruption, by definition, is when God interrupts the proceedings. He interrupts a program. He interrupts an itinerary. He interrupts a person's life in order to fulfill his will and his purpose. Then there is what I deemed a divine intervention. An intervention is an act of interfering with the outcome of course or course, especially of a condition or process to prevent harm or to improve function. It's taken me 71 years to finally figure out before I do a project to pray and ask God to give me the ability to do it. Instead of after I got frustrated, after I wasted material, after I tired myself and wore myself out, I finally figured it out. I'm sorry, I'm a slow learner. If it was wisdom, I'd have done it a long time ago. Then there's... Uh, a divine visitation, which many things would fall into that category, but visitation is when God comes to church to show his divine favor or wrath. Divine favor or wrath. It's a visitation of God. God doesn't always show up 
to bless. Sometimes he shows up to judge. And uh, these things are expressed during a powerful visitation of God. So as we see the depth of depravity that is currently consuming our world, and as we acknowledge our proximity to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to always and at all times desire, pursue, and expect a manifestation of God on the highest point possible of that spectrum because that's what we need. Why would we settle for low-voltage church when we can have high-voltage church? Why would we settle for a, a triple-A battery when we could have a 12-volt battery or a Tesla battery? Why would we settle for less? So let's get down to business. I don't know what time I started because John messed me up. I didn't look at the clock. When God visited Moses on the backside of the desert, we are more than familiar with this particular story. Uh, the mission that he was being called to was very important, and it would require uh, faith, courage, perseverance. Uh, it would require a supernatural manifestation of God. It would require something that Moses was aware of, and one of the reasons why he resisted somewhat, it would require sacrifice. And so the manifestation of God that he experienced was equivalent to the mission. It was equivalent to the mission that was in front of him. I want you to get that. Because the visitation of God among his people today needs to be equivalent to the world that we're living in and to the mission that the church is set upon to invade that darkness and to pull people out of the fire, out of the darkness, and into the light of God's kingdom. The visitation of God is manifested equivalent to the mission that God's people are upon in this present world. So in Exodus 3 and 1, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, pre-submitting. He led the flock to the backside of the desert came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. You understand that it's saying that Moses was a loner. He liked being alone. He was comfortable being alone. You understand that we all have little idiosyncrasies that God is trying to pull us out of in order for us to fulfill his mission. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the the bush burned with fire. The bush was not consumed. That's cool. That's interesting. I've never seen anything like that before. I wonder what's causing that. Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, when the Lord saw that he had captured his attention, when the Lord saw that Moses was intrigued by a bush that was burning and yet was not being consumed, when God saw that he had Moses' attention, hear me now, when God saw that he had Moses' attention, he said, okay, I'll talk to you now. 
When I got his attention, now you're going to hear my voice. When I get your attention, now I'm going to give you some directions and I, I want to call you to a higher life and to a higher degree of ministry. You see, God is trying to get our attention. The burning bush was not everything God wanted to do for Moses. It was only to get his attention. Hold on to that. Keep hold of that for a little while. Because we have come to think that the manifestation of God is the only purpose for his visitation. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Now, Moses was the only one present. I get that. But do you understand that God is calling our name? We're in a congregation, a group of people, and we think this is just some generic general visitation of God. God's here for every single person in this room. He knows you by name, and he's calling you out by name because God has a job for you. And so his visitation was accompanied by a supernatural manifestation. It was also accompanied by the audible voice of God, something that probably nobody in this room has ever heard, including me. The manifestation of God didn't reveal anything to Moses. It just made him curious. But the word that God spoke to Moses revealed his will and purpose. For the man, and furthermore, for the children of Israel. Because God's presence is always accompanied by a word. So he says to him, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And we're not going to replay the entire conversation that Moses had with God because we know the rest of the story. We, we know uh, uh, that Moses was being called of God to go to Egypt and to bring the children of Israel out. Had Moses only saw the burning bush, but had he not heard the voice of God, regardless of how amazed he was, regardless of how mesmerized he was. He may have been uh, nothing more than a shepherd in the desert, and Israel would have remained in bondage until God could have got somebody else's uh, attention. In this particular instance, the visitation of God to Moses fulfilled all three previously mentioned purposes for God's visitation. It was a divine interruption to the calm and the serene life that Moses was living. It was a divine intervention for the Israelites who were in hard bondage in Egypt. And it was a declaration of favor for the Hebrews and a declaration of wrath for the Egyptians. I hope you understand God is here for a reason.
That being the case, then we must present a proper response. We must respond accordingly to the visitation of God. In passing, it's important to acknowledge that the nation of Israel experienced virtually the same thing. If you've ever even one time read the book of Deuteronomy, then you know that uh, God would also appear in exactly the same manner to the entire nation of Israel. When they got to Mount Horeb, the Bible talks about Mount Horeb and Sinai. That's a different deal. You can study up on that later. Um, while Moses saw a burning bush, the children of Israel saw a burning mountain. The mountain burned with fire, and, and, and that was frightening enough, but then God spoke to them from that mountain, and before the Ten Commandments were etched on two tablets of stone, God spoke the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel from that mountain. Deuteronomy 4 and 7, what nation is there so great? This is, this is uh, Moses reciting this account, who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this, all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire under the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke unto you out of the midst of the fire, Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. The voice of God came out of the fire, and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Now, I have no doubt that we can feel his presence in this room, but can we hear his voice? I know we feel him, but can we hear him? You understand what we're trying to convey to you here uh, this afternoon. He is here to interrupt our lives in some manner or form. He is here to intervene in somebody's life and, and save you from tragedy and save you from hell and save you from an eternity being separated from God. He's here to grant us divine favor so that his purpose and will can be fulfilled not just in the world but in our own city, in our own neighborhoods, and in our own families. And it's all revealed through his word. God revealed himself to Moses. 
but not by the wonder and awe that he experienced at the phenomenon that was before him. God revealed himself to Moses through his spoken word. Praise God. Elijah fled to Mount Horeb. This Mount Horeb was, uh, was heavily trafficked throughout the course of the word of God. Prophets and patriarchs alike had visited Mount Horeb numerous times throughout the course of history. Of course, Mount Horeb was the very place where Moses saw the burning bush and where Israel saw the burning mountain. I can't help but believe that a visitation of God requires that we are in a very specific location. And I know you're immediately thinking geography, but let me bear you away from uh, geographical points, although that is possible with God, but I'm not talking about geography. Even though God told the uh, disciples to go to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, uh, go to Jerusalem, not Capernaum, go to Jerusalem and wait until you are endued with power from on high. Also, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, the Lord said, there's a place by me. And if you will go stand in that place, I will pass by you and show you my glory. So while the location for many of the prophets and patriarchs was geographical in nature, while it was geographical in nature for the 120 that received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, I'm speaking of a different kind of place here this afternoon. Access and occupation of the intangible place of which I speak requires a journey down sometimes long corridors of prayer. There's a place there, but you got to be willing to go down that corridor until you reach that place. If you stop short, you won't receive it. If you don't go far enough, he won't speak to you. If you don't reach that place, you will walk away being satisfied that you at least occupied the corridor of prayer, but you didn't go far enough to hear the voice of God give you direction and speak to your heart. The place of which we speak right now is concerning waiting rooms. We don't like to wait. We're, we're anxious about things. We've got an accelerator pedal in our automobiles and our SUVs and our pickup trucks, and we use it without discretion to get where we want to go in a hurry and very quickly, but it doesn't work that way when dealing with the Holy Ghost and the things of God. We have to be willing to go into waiting rooms and say, I know there's something here. If I can just wait until God opens the door and reveals it to me. Talking about places such as personal and corporate sacrifice. Personal and corporate prayer and sacrifice. This is not something we just do on our own 
and we meet a couple times a week and compare notes. We are in this thing together. And God wants to reveal himself to his body, to his church, when we are gathered together. My Lord, when God comes to church, he's here for a reason. A sovereign visitation of God will occur at times and we will wonder, where did that come from? But we cannot just rely on a sovereign visitation of God. God sometimes bypasses our protocols, bypasses our convention, bypasses our schedule and our tradition. But if we will bypass those things, if we will lay them aside, and pursue God, then the visitation of God, while always sovereign in nature, is something that is inspired by the faith and the sacrifice and the commitment of God's people. The men and women of the Bible that we read about every single day of the week, those at least that experienced visitations of God, they were in pursuit of such interludes. I'm going to say it again. They were in pursuit of such interludes. And the reason they pursued such interludes was either because of a burning desire or it was out of desperation. I remember years ago, uh, we attended many uh, because of the times in Alexandria, Louisiana. And we heard many, many messages, dynamic messages, were in many moves of God, but there are not a lot of things that I remember, uh, but I remember this. It was in a day service, and, and uh, the preacher was preaching about prayer. And he said that God spoke to him and said, I will make you pray. When God makes you pray, it won't be a joy. Something's going to have to be broken for God to make you pray. Something's going to have to be going wrong for God to make you pray. I don't want to wait for God to make me pray. I'd rather pursue God because I love him, because I have a desire to be in his presence. Isn't it strange how we remember little things through the years that help to form and shape us in our walk with God. But in Elijah's case, he was in a state of desperation. Jezebel had threatened to kill him, and it, it wasn't dying that Elijah was worried about. It was the way that she was going to kill him that kind of bothered him a little bit. So he travels 40 days in order to reach the summit of Horeb, you know, uh, it's an unusual story to say the least, but I guess he felt like God's met with uh, his people on Horeb many times. If I can get to Horeb, I'll hear something from God. So he takes refuge in a cave, and, and uh, the Lord tells him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And as the prophet stood at the mouth of the cave, the Lord passed by. And as he did, there was a great strong uh, wind that rent the mountains. 
Now we're just going to go through this quickly because of time. And, and, and uh, then the, the, the wind actually broke in pieces the rocks. Broke, the wind broke the rocks. The wind did that. Wind was so powerful, it broke rocks. I seen this thing the other day. It was uh, like a water hose that a fireman uses. And the guy went up to a piece of solid steel. And the velocity of the water was so great, he held it up there, and pretty soon it shot right straight through the steel. The wind, just wind, was crushing rocks. And the sound of that must have been, must have been loud and, and, and frightening. But the Bible says God wasn't in the wind. I didn't say he didn't cause it, but he wasn't in it. After the wind, then there was an earthquake. Are you kidding me? The wind is crushing stone and rocks, and now the, the whole mountain is shaking and quaking. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And so none of these things, God's saying, Elijah, this is great and everything, but this is not what I, I want you to receive. The purpose and the will of God for Elijah was not revealed in any of those things. Those are some of the things that we look for, for direction. Come on, one God apostolics. We're looking for something that thunders, something that, sh that shakes the ground, something that gets our attention. And Vincent's commentary of the Old and New Testaments, it is suggested that these effects were all produced by the ministration of angels, the harbingers of divine majesty, and were to usher in the intended manifestation of Jehovah's glory. He continues, and by these, Elijah was to receive the discovery of God with the greatest humility, reverence, and godly fear. Stand there and tremble, Elijah. Stand there in fear. Stand there and wonder if the mountain is going to collapse with you on it. But the Bible says that after the fire, the final uh, dimension of God's manifestation was completed, Elijah heard a still, small voice. I want you to understand something right now. I don't care how loud or animated the preacher is. Within the message, within the audible sounds, the words, the language, the context, the senses, and subject, there has to be somewhere in all of that for you. A still, small voice that will emerge saying, this is for me. i got to get a hold of this. i got to hear this. This is important. This is vital. A still, small voice. I want you to know God has never yelled at me. He's never lifted his voice at me. He's only spoken to me in one way. A still, small voice. The NIV version says, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. God wants my attention. He knows how to get it. He can just tell me. He's been talking to you for years. The Amplified Bible says after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle blowing. 
ESV says, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In his commentary on this verse, Albert Barnes describes the still small voice literally as a sound of soft stillness. Lord God, help us. What Elijah heard in that still, small voice, in that low whisper, was a contrast to the manifestation of God. It was a direct and stark contrast to the incredible sounds, the crushing of rocks, the shaking of the earth, and all of the visual and audio sounds and marvels that was occurring there. Is it possible that we are so focused on the manifestation of God that we are unable to hear his voice? Is it possible that our attention is more on what God is doing than on what God is saying? When God comes to church, while he may exert his power and might and glory, when God comes to church, he's here to reveal himself, his word, and his will. How many times have I been guilty of going home after church feeling good about what I felt instead of what I Saul was on his way to Damascus to terrorize the saints of God in Damascus. Suddenly there shined about him a light from heaven. This was during the day, so you can imagine a light that was so much brighter, obviously brighter, more brilliant than the sun. And he immediately fell to the earth the light blinded him. But then Saul heard a voice. And the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, called him by name, um, why persecutest thou me? That's King James Version. Why are you persecuting me? His response, of course, to this voice was, who are you? Or who art thou, Lord? Be formal here. Who art thou, Lord? The Lord says to him, I am Jesus. You say, what? I am Jesus. Let's just stop for a moment. I am Jesus. That's the first thing that God wants to reveal from his voice is who he is. I am Jesus. Then, of course, he said, I'm the, the guy, the God, the Lord, 
whom thou persecutest, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And as with many other instances, the manifestation of God was only there to prepare Saul for the word of God or for the revelation that was forthcoming. Without the light, the blinding light, he may have written off the voice. Drank a little too much wine last night. But the light in the voice was undeniable. So when God captured the attention of the nation of Israel by setting Mount Horeb on fire, Moses was able to speak something similar to the people. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6 and 4. The Lord our God is one Lord. What good is a burning mountain without a revelation of who God is? What good is a powerful service without a revelation of who God is? And one of the things, I was just talking to my wife about it, that literally baffles me to no end, how the Messianic Jewish community is still engrossed and bound by a Trinitarian doctrine. It's, it's mind-boggling. If anybody ought to be one God, if there's a Messianic you watching, if anybody ought to be one God, it ought to be you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And these words, therefore, because of the manifestation of God and the revelation of his word, they were etched into the heart and soul now of Saul, who's standing on the road to Damascus, blinded by this brilliant light, this devoted Hebrew Pharisee, now discovers that that one God is Jesus. You talk about a revelation. You want to know when I received the revelation of one God? We sat in the pastor's office on a Monday night. Hadn't been to the altar yet. And he opened the Bible and we read Matthew 28, 19. And when I read that verse of scripture, I had a revelation. Thank God. So many people trip over that verse of Scripture. This profound revelation led Saul, who was astonished, who was trembling, to ask, Lord, what will you have me to do? Isn't that interesting? We know the rest of the story. God spoke to Ananias, and Ananias went to a street called Straight baptized Saul, Saul received the Holy Ghost, and so on and so on. But I want to direct your attention to Acts chapter 9 and 7. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. We cannot deny the fact that the visitation of God on the road was specific to Saul of Tarsus, that these men saw the light and they heard the same voice and the same words that Saul heard 
but it had no effect upon them. They led Saul into Damascus, dropped him off, and then they are never to be heard from again. My God. That may not speak anything to you, but it speaks volumes to me. They were present, and they witnessed not only a manifestation, a visitation of God, they heard the audible voice of God, something I have never heard before. They witnessed the account of God himself revealing himself to a man who would be called and become the greatest apostle that would ever live. And once they dropped that man off in Damascus, they were never heard from again. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 21, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Now these were wicked, wicked cities. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for and thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, this is, this is astounding, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for it is an incredible thing to witness, to be present when and where there is a visitation of the living God. But he always requires something of those that are present for such things. There's always a responsibility that rests upon those that are blessed enough to see and hear and witness, and to be in a divine and sanctified place where God manifests himself among his people. If the worship team would join me on the platform, I will be just a few more moments. I know it seems like I'm going longer because Brother John took up some of my time. I'm going I'm to be perfectly honest with you. I am, I am as honest and sincere with what I'm getting ready to say as I've ever been. I try every time to preach short. I do. What are you laughing at? I want to leave you with this, if you would permit me, 1 Kings 18, 19 and 20, now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, the prophets of the growers, 400, which sat at Jezebel's table, and Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Carmel was a very high mountain. Uh, it protruded out from the Mediterranean 
uh, coastline of northern Israel. It was known for its beauty, and uh, it was significant from the standpoint that when Mount Carmel was blooming and blossoming, it was an indication that the blessing of God was on the children of Israel and the land of Israel. But when Mount Carmel was withering and was fading and the vegetation was dying, it was an indication that God had withdrawn his blessing off of Israel and off of the land, and therefore his judgment had been pronounced upon them. And it was a visual representation, uh, kind of a barometer, if you please, of whether God was blessing Israel or he was cursing them. So it's fitting that God chose this place to reveal himself once again to the children of Israel. Uh, so it wasn't long before the prophets gathered themselves together and uh, Without delay, Elijah took him aside and set the rules of engagement, if you please. Here's the way we're going to do this. He set all the rules up, and, and uh, here's the way the contest will ensue. Then it says in verse 23, Let them therefore give us two bullocks, once you to know, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, cut it in pieces, put it on wood. No fire under, of course. I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. I want, first of all, uh, the, the Holy Ghost is speaking to me about your prayer life. That Sometimes you go and there's no fire. And because there's no fire, you quit praying. Because there's no fire, you quickly give up. Because there's no fire, you don't stay there long enough for God to kindle something from his spirit. But he wants you to understand, just because there's no fire uh, at that particular moment, if you will prevail, if you will remain, if you will tarry with God at an altar, God will start a fire in your prayer room. And he said, call on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answers by fire, let him be God, and all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. You know the story, the prophets of Baal exhausted themselves, they cut themselves, they were mutilated, they were bleeding, they jumped up and down the altar, they tore the altar apart, they made literal fools out of themselves, and still there was no fire from God, it was nothing. What the prophet of God did next is both unique and interesting. First of all, he says unto the people, before he does anything, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, he says to the people, get as close as you can. The Bible says come near to me. Everybody come in. So everybody's standing off, see. Now he said, I want everybody to get close. I want you to get as close to this as you can possibly get. There's going to be a manifestation. I'm, of course, paraphrasing now. There's going to be a manifestation of God a revelation of God, but I want you to be as close to it as you can possibly get. You see, we are safe maintaining a particular distance where we are comfortable, but let God do what God's going to do, but it doesn't need to affect me. It, it doesn't need to have any profound effect upon me. But right now, I hear the Holy Ghost saying, I want you to get close to what I'm going to do in this altar in a few minutes. Come near unto me. Some would say, well, uh, and it could be also that Elijah didn't want them to accuse him later of any chicanery, carrying a butane torch in his robe. But it was more than that. He wanted them to experience a manifestation of God along with the revelation they were getting ready to receive. Get as close as you possibly can. Next, he repairs the altar. 
actually rebuilds. It says repaired, but he actually rebuilt the altar using 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he had a trench dug around the altar, a huge trench encircling the entire altar. What are you doing, Elijah? And they now cut the bullock in pieces. Elijah laid them in the wood in order upon the altar. And uh, then he began to do something that was very unorthodox. Unorthodox. It was a com completely abstract to sacrificial protocol. He had four barrels of water poured on top of the altar, the bullock cut in pieces, the wood, and it ran down. Now we know why there's a trench. Four barrels of water, even as scarce as water was, and then he had it repeated, I think, three more times. Anywhere there were about 12 barrels of water till everything was completely soaking wet, saturated. The trench was full of water now. And uh, now he prays a brief prayer. Going a long, drawn out. It, it didn't take a whole page in the word of God for this prayer. But just a simple, short, very succinct prayer. He says, um, the fire of, and, the, and the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed everything. It consumed everything. You see, I think a lot of us are hoping we get out of here without being burned. You see, because a burn leaves a scar. A burn is painful. A burn is a marking. A burn destroys things. You understand that's really what the altar's about. You really don't, even though our terminology is kind of mixed up, we really don't have an altar where we pray. The altar's where we die. The altar's for sacrifice. The altar's where we take things that you can't take back. It's for the destruction of things. It's where the fire consumes things in our lives that are a hindrance to us. And when the fire consumed everything, I mean when the fire ended, there was no altar. The, the stones had been consumed. The, the water had been completely uh, licked up. The, the wood was gone. There was nothing there but a, a, a black spot on the dirt. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Would you stand with me? End of story, not even close. Mission accomplished, only part of the mission. Taking advantage of the moment, of course, he commanded the people to seize the prophets, which they did, took him down to the brook Kishon and, and slew them there. End of story, not even close. Will you please just allow your attention to remain with me for just a few more minutes? Because that's when we fold our Bibles and we go home. That's when we are thankful that the enemy's been destroyed and we've been blessed. The revelation of God has come forth. There's been a, a turning in the tide. Strongholds have been pulled down. My gosh, let's go home and rejoice. It's been great. But the mission was not complete yet. And I know this is primarily what God wants to speak to us today. And it took a while to get here, but hopefully now we're ready to hear it. 
Elijah turns to Ahab, the prophet is a bloody mess. I mean, 450 prophets, you can only imagine. It's a massacre. Turns to Ahab and says, get up. By biblical language, get thee up. Eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now, this sounded, when the Lord took me here for this message, sounded eerily familiar because we are at a present time in an apostolic environment that is saying exactly the same thing that Elijah said. There's going to be worldwide revival and outpouring of the Holy Ghost like we've never seen before. Millions, perhaps billions, are going to be saved. Backsliders are going to return. Prodigals are going to be crawling home to the altar again. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Doesn't it sound eerily familiar? And we address it on a regular basis. We encourage ourselves. There's going to be the outpouring of Holy Ghost rain. And I believe that. I concur with that. I sense the same spirit of prophecy in my own heart and in my own mind. And we've been declaring it for our city and for our neighborhoods, for our state now for such a long, long time. And we're hoping and praying that it encompasses all of America. But after the false prophets of Baal had been disposed of, Elijah he goes back up to Mount Carmel. The crowd is gone. The worship team has went home. The musicians have folded up their instruments and went home. And Elijah now, with his servant, goes back up to the top of Carmel. He kneels down in the dark, places his head between his knees, and he begins to pray. What's he praying for? He's just seen a phenomenon that's been preached about for, for 3,000 years. What are you doing, Elijah? I'm praying for rain. The first song we sang in worship today was about rain. He began to pray for rain. Remember, it took just a very short prayer for the fire to fall, but now he prays earnestly, vigilantly, for rain, ardently for rain, sweating and, and fatigued and becoming hoarse. He, he, he kneels up and says to his servant, go, go look and see if you see any clouds forming. The servant comes back and says, man, there ain't nothing there. There's nothing. Elijah says, well, then I, I, I'll pray again. So he got down and he prayed again. After a while, would you go look? Is there anything? There's nothing. Elijah, I don't see anything. After seven exhaustive seasons of prayer, now completely saturated with sweat, physically exhausted, finally his servant comes back and says, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Elijah learned that day that something we need to learn as well as a group of apostolics that God has strategically placed in this world prior to his coming, his return. 
and you learn that the fire is easy. The fire is easy. But the rain requires faithful, vigilant, and persistent prayer. Listen to me. The fire is easy. Fifteen minutes of prayer and three songs will kindle a fire. A little bit of faith will kindle a fire. A little bit of hope will kindle a fire. But the rain, the rain's not so easy. And so we have relied on the fire all too long. We've been satisfied with the fire. But what our city needs is rain. The fire has revealed himself to us. We know the one true God, Jesus, is Jehovah, robed in flesh. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are so immersed in fire. Even John the Baptist said we'd be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. But what our city needs is rain. There's a spiritual drought in America just like there was in Israel. And there's nothing wrong with the fire. But the fire is specifically and geographically located. The fire didn't fall on Horeb, didn't fall on another mountain, on Moriah. The fire fell right, not only on Horeb, but exactly on the altar that, and the sacrifice that Elijah had prepared. The fire may fall in here, but there's still a drought in our city. fire falls strategically to where our praise is. You want to know the people that get blessed to say that's a fluke? No, it's because that's where God finds praise and worship. You know, the people that really get blessed and saturated and moved by the Holy Ghost, it's not an accident. It's not, it, it's not some weird thing that happens. God says, there's praise there. I'm going to bless that sister. There's worship there. I'm going to bless that brother. That's where the fire falls, where he finds the sacrifice of praise. It draws fire. Worship draws the fire. But prayer draws the rain. Prayer draws the rain. So, while the fire is falling adjacent and directly upon the sacrifice of praise and worship. When it rains, it rains everywhere. Can we cause a move of God in that denominal church down the street? You better believe we can. Can we cause a move of God inside of people's homes that are watching football while we're having church? You better believe we can. The fire falls on God's people, but the rain falls on the just and the unjust. When the fire falls in here, 
the rain will fall on multitudes. People who are sitting in denominal, charismatic, non-apostolic, Trinitarian churches bound by generations of tradition. The rain can fall in a Presbyterian church. The rain can fall in the dry drought of an Episcopal church. And people can walk out of those dead, dry, lethargic services with a hunger for God because the rain fell on them in that environment. Because the rain, when it falls, it doesn't just fall on apostolics. It doesn't just fall in an apostolic prayer meeting or environment. It falls on everybody. It falls upon the sick and the tired, the broken, the bruised, the addict, the homosexual, the lesbian. It falls on everybody. I'm grateful for the fire I am. But I'm so hungry to see lives changed. To see revival. I'm not going to read the scriptures. I'm just going to tell you the Holy Ghost fell in the upper room. It says there was cloven tongues. Like I said, fire sat upon each of them. The fire was in the upper room. There's no mention of fire in the streets of Jerusalem, is there? You want to know why they gathered seven to ten days before the outpouring of the Holy Ghost? Because prayer is what brought the rain. The fire fell in the upper room, but it began to rain in the streets of Jerusalem. And so when they said, what meaneth this? These men are, are not drunk as you suppose. Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. For he says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Wasn't it Joel? They talked about former rain and latter rain. Yeah. Because rain is what will bring people through the doors of this church. Fire is to send you out, but the rain will bring them in. You understand? The fire is to ignite something within God's people, but the rain will cause them to drive in our parking lot. They'll pull in the, in the driveway where you live. They'll see you walking into your apartment or house. Say, hey, there's something about you. Don't get a big head over that. Don't think you're something important or special or, or some anointed one. It's just that somebody's been praying and the rain is beginning to fall in our city. So with that revelation of God and now bearing the responsibility for the things that we have heard, I would like to invite you to come near and to prostrate yourself before him. Acknowledge to him, I have heard your word. I receive your word. I receive the call of God. I understand now why I got to pray on Monday. I understand now why I got to pray on Tuesday. I understand now it's not just about me. 
not just about my life and my family. I understand now why I pray on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and understand, well, I got to go to the prayer room and pray and, and call upon the Lord our God so that it will rain. So that it will rain. So that Joel in heaven can look down if it's possible for him to do so and see his prophecy coming to pass in the city of Fort Myers and Lehigh Acres and Estero and North Fort Myers and Cape Coral and all over our county because somebody took their head between their knees said, God, the fire was great. We gotta have rain. We have to have rain. My God, help us, Jesus. Help us leave here with a revelation. Hear our cry, be lifted high in this place. Lord, we want you, no one else will do. Come on, let's really cry out to God. I've got a sister I've been praying God don't let her go to hell
other than receiving the Holy Ghost, the next greatest joy that a child of God can experience is seeing someone else receive the Holy Ghost. When it's somebody that you've taught a Bible study to, it even amplifies that joy even more. somebody you witnessed to, prayed for. That's the Lord why did Elijah pray seven times? What is the significance of that? The answer I received was seven, of course, is God's number of completion. And it doesn't mean that the number seven is magical. It means that Elijah was committed to praying until God decided to send the rain. If it would have taken 20 times, so be it. He was committed to not leave that mountain until he had the assurance from God that it was getting ready to rain. Church, We will hear about the value, the benefit, the importance of prayer until we leave this world. Let it not fall on deaf ears today. May we receive this word into hearts that consist of good ground. Protect this word. Protect it, nourish it, that it may bring much fruit. We wish you all a, a happy, safe Thanksgiving. There's no church Thursday night. Be with your family. And uh, Lord willing, if the trumpet doesn't sound, see you next Sunday. God bless you in Jesus' name.
the Ramirez family uh, provided some photos. They wanted the church to see some pictures of baby Evelyn. Isn't she precious? So perfectly formed. So just keep her in your prayers. She is doing incredibly well. She is four weeks old today, 27 weeks. She is moving a lot. So she is progressing really well. Sister Kayleen texted me today and said she had a great, great week. And so let's just keep praying that God continues to move her forward and progress. In Jesus' name.